This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 24, The Little Differences. Today's proverb comes from Leo Tolstoy. I'll read it twice. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Once more. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Like many proverbs, this is a proverb about proverbial wisdom itself. All happy families are alike, which is to say... All happy families have something in common. Or all happy families are common. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And to say in its own way is to say special. All happy families are common. Each unhappy family is special. Each happy family has quite a bit in common with other happy families. And each unhappy family has very little in common with other unhappy families. The quote is nearly 150 years old. 
I'll only make a passing comment on this fact. Happy families are like happy families of their own era, because what is common is common in its own time. But I would suggest that happy families are also like happy families of previous eras, that a happy family shares something in common with happy families throughout all time, and that what could make a family happy 200 years ago, 500 years ago, can also make a family happy today. Now, for the family that's unhappy, for the family that's special, I'd like to suggest that there's two kinds of unhappy families. Or if we're going to say that each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way, there are two significant points of divergence in unhappiness. And one of those kinds of unhappiness is an unhappiness that the family is aware of. And the other kind of unhappiness is an unhappiness where there's plausible deniability. So when I think of an unhappy family that knows it, I think of a family like the Flight family from Brideshead Revisited. Novels from the 18th and 19th century are often well-stocked with aristocratic families that are absolutely miserable and everyone knows it. And there's some kind of Cold War that goes on between the members of the family constantly. And there are sides drawn. And people go to war with one another in subtle, manipulative, emotional ways. And it's a race to get to uh, the patriarch's will. Uh, if you saw Knives Out in the theater recently, that would be another example of an unhappy family that knew it was unhappy. Of course, uh, that might be a, a great example or a great proof of this quote, uh, the unhappiness of the extended family in the film Knives Out is bizarre. Um, they are unhappy in a, in a highly distinct and unusual sort of way. Not only are they at war uh, over a patriarch's money, um, but all the little uh, teams and crews within the family that conspire together and then backstab one another um, it's a kind of awful sort of intrigue that goes on within the family. But the flight family, say, from Brideshead Revisited, they're miserable and they know it. And there's no pretense that the flight family is what a good family is supposed to look like. They're, uh, a, the whole family is a bit cynical about themselves. They're even cynical about families, especially because their family as an aristocratic family, was held up to the public as an example of what a family ought to be. And having failed, they simply became very cynical about the value of the family, the meaning of the family. So beyond their awareness of their own unhappiness, of course, the Flight family takes their own unique, uh, their unique road or their unique way or their special way towards a very particular kind of unhappiness. But then there's the unhappy family that is embarrassed of their own unhappiness. 
And it's odd when a family knows what it ought to be, but is incapable of achieving it. Or when a family knows what it ought to be, but is unwilling to pursue this thing that it ought to be. So I think that most people are probably, I mean, liberal, conservative, progressive, traditionalist, a lot of people uh, would admit that a good family is one that's characterized by love and safety, um, where the parents um, serve the children, have authority over the children and guide the children into uh, the autonomy that characterizes late adolescence, and they let their children go when they ought to. And maybe liberals and conservatives would both agree on that. Among conservatives or among Christians or traditionalists, you would probably find some agreement um, that mom and dad ought to be in charge, um, that everyone should get presents and little parties on their birthday, and that the family uh, is a part of uh, the life of a church, but also has a life of its own, and the life of the family serves the life of the church. Um, you know, little accomplishments within the family uh, are given an appropriate acknowledgement and celebration, and children feel as though their good works are honored by their parents and recognized by their parents. Um, the parents discipline their children uh, in a spirit uh, of love, and to train up their children to love God and to be capable of carrying on family as a sort of universal human tradition. So I think among you know, conservative families, tra traditionalist families, Christian families, I think all those things are probably more or less admitted. But not every family achieves those things. Now, when we, I'll come back to that in a minute. When we talk about a, a common family, we're talking about a normal family. And as I've mentioned before on the show, I believe that the concept of normal is actually quite wide, it's quite diverse, and that what counts as normal is by no means dull or even singular. And the example that I've used before is that if you were to walk through um, the ladies' clothing section at Nordstrom, you could find a hundred different outfits that were uh, appropriate for church, appropriate for working out, a night out, um, uh, for a, a cocktail party. And despite the different styles and the different you know, lengths of skirt and cuts of pants, that a hundred different outfits could all look normal. That there's a hundred different outfits you could arrange from all the clothes in any department store and all of the outfits would look more or less normal. There would be nothing about those outfits that would be flashy or call attention to the person who was wearing them. You would look normal in most of the clothes at Nordstrom. Uh, the same is true of food. I mean, when we talk about normal food, we could be talking about lasagna, tacos, chicken tiki masala. We could be talking about uh, Caesar salad. We could be speaking about, uh, you know, Italian wedding soup. So many different kinds of food all pass as normal. And if you were to go over to somebody's house and they were to serve you anything uh, from uh, lamb curry to, um, to spaghetti or hamburgers from the grill, like you would tell anybody about dinner and say, yeah, it was a normal, it was a normal meal. It wasn't served anything 
outlandish. And yet what passes as normal is actually quite diverse. Now, given that normal is a range, anytime you've got a range, you've got things that are on the outskirts of the range. You've got things that are debatably normal or barely normal or borderline, which means that it can be hard to determine whether something is normal. I think most of the time it's easy enough, but there are cases where normal is up for debate. Is this normal? Now, to return to the quote for a second, Tolstoy says, all happy families are like each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Let's take the particular wording of the quote to heart. The quote is not, all happy people are alike. Each unhappy person is unhappy in its own way. The quote is about families. And families are, to be honest, more of a mystery than individuals are. And I say this because we all know a lot of individuals. As a teacher in a school, I know scores of individuals. I know hundreds of individuals. I know my students as individuals. I know my students' parents as individuals. And I encounter individuals everywhere I go. So do you, so does everybody. You go to the store and an individual rings up your groceries. An individual carries your groceries out to your car, maybe, if it's a nice grocery store. Uh, if you walk into uh, an electronics store, an individual is going to help you uh, find a stereo or find a printer. We all know individuals. The individual is a well-known thing, but families are not. We don't know families as well as we know individuals. Families are kind of a mystery, really, for most people. Like, take a guess for a moment. If you have to pause the show for a second, fine. My question is, with how many families have you had a meal in that family's home in the last five years? How often has your family or you as an individual gone into the home of another family and spent two or three hours there? Observing the decor, observing everyone at their ease, seeing the way they set their table, seeing what kind of food they serve, what kind of wine, whether you get a tour of the home or not. How often have you done that? In the last five years, I'm going to ballpark it at a dozen homes I've been into to have a meal. That might be low. If it's off, it's probably low. It's no more than 20. It's between 12 and 20. That's actually quite a low number when compared with the number of individuals I know. So because we have this greater knowledge of individuals, we're better suited to declaring what's weird about an individual. But families are not like that. Families are more guarded. They're more secretive. They are closed off from us. The family doesn't just go everywhere. Like, individuals go everywhere. When you go shopping, you're just passing individual after individual after individual. 
And after you've gone grocery shopping, if some alien were to show up on planet Earth and spend an hour in a grocery store, after an hour, that alien being could tell you what normal dress looks like. They could tell you how normal people dress after just an hour. You walk around, you observe the color of people's hair, glasses, jewelry, the kind of their clothing. If an alien came to my town, Richmond, Virginia, and walked around a grocery store for an hour, and if there was someone, uh, if there was a, a Muslim in the grocery store wearing a hijab, an alien would be able to say, this person is not dressed like everyone else. They would stand out. But that's because we know individuals. We have a, a great experience with individuals. But families are not like this. We're not entirely certain, or we're not as certain what a normal family is, as we are certain what a normal individual is. Because a family is not three individuals. A family is not four individuals or five individuals. A family has its own life. It's its own thing. A family is far greater than the sum of its parts. In the same way, I forget if it was last week or the week before, in the same way that a great conversation has a life of its own, and I could almost believe that it's Christ himself mystically present wherever two or three are gathered in his name, wherever two or three are gathered in the name of truth, seeking the truth, that Christ is mystically present and it is Christ himself who guides the conversation into higher realms of truth that each individual could not find on their own. And every intellectual person knows this, knows this experience where in the midst of a, a conversation between two people whose hearts are both inclined towards one another in a spirit of love and an attempt to discern the truth, a conversation will go odd places and you will suddenly find yourself being led as opposed to leading the conversation. That You're being led by some kind of mysterious power. And you might say, well, this is just reason or this is logic unfolding and, and we're being given time and space to seek out the conclusion of various premises that you're joining with mine. But I think it's Christ. Regardless, families have their own lives as well. And a family is its own thing. A family is not a person. It's a different sort of thing. So we have a lot of experience knowing what's normal for an individual, but we're much less certain what normal for a family means. For this reason, when you go over to the home of another family to have dinner, there's always a certain spirit of curiosity and I think a little bit of fear. Maybe fear is too strong. A certain kind of anxiety about going into the home of another family 
that's not present when you're meeting another person for the first time. Because we don't know, or because we don't have a really massive sample size in terms of what families are like, there's always the fear or the anxiety or the tension that when you go into another family's home, you're going to discover that your family is not normal or that their family's not normal. And to encounter an individual that's not normal or an individual who challenges your conception of normal and makes you think that maybe you have not understood normal all along or that you have a skewed notion of it, that's unsettling. But to learn that your own conception of family is wonky, that's kind of terrifying. So you go over to a family's home, and I mean, you walk in and you immediately start looking around to see how much like your home, their home is. And you try to draw connections between the way that they've decorated their home and the way that you decorate your home. And you try to figure out whether things are done normally here. The first time you go into a family's home, I mean, let's say you've worked with some fellow for years and after years, for whatever reason, you have two or three weeks where you're working very closely with another person from work. And at the end of three weeks, you feel quite, I don't know, uh, quite friendly towards one another. And and your coworker says, hey, why don't you bring your family over for dinner sometime? You say, that'd be great. And you assume that this is a normal person, but the fact that you're working with a normal person or the fact that you've encountered a normal individual is no guarantee that he has a normal family. In the same way, people can seem normal, and yet their vital organs might be in a state of near collapse. I mean, somebody might look normal, but be days away from heart failure. And no one knows it. The same is true of families, right? I mean, the, the same is true vice versa, that you could encounter an individual who seemed quite strange, and yet they seemed rather normal when they were with their family. And once they returned to their family home, everything kind of fell into place, and, and they assumed the role appropriate to themselves in, in the life of the family. But when you go into somebody's home, you immediately start sizing it up. Is this a normal family? Is this a normal home? And there's a range for normal, right? There are things that are borderline normal. There are things that are center normal. And then there's stuff that's way outside. And occasionally that stuff comes to light when you see the family interacting with itself. For instance, you might go over to someone's house and find that one of their children wears the pants in the family. <laughs> it's not mom, it's not dad, but some teenage boy who actually calls the shots. And at first, you have your suspicions that some teenage boy is just too powerful in this family, that the whole 
family dynamic centers around pleasing a child, a teenage child. And at first you think, maybe I'm just seeing things. Maybe this isn't actually as strange as, I, as it appears. And then as the evening goes on, you see everyone bend toward the will of this teenage boy. And eventually you begin to wonder, why? Do they know? Are they willing to admit that everything bends towards this boy? Now, of course, you would never say anything about this. If you have a weird family, you've got to figure it out for yourself. No one's ever going to tell you. If you're a weird person, if you're a weird individual, a very good friend might someday clue you in as to why no one wants to go on a date with you. Someone might take you aside and say, look, if you want to get married, there are certain eccentricities about your personality that you're going to have to polish off. You are scaring women away with this weird thing you do. I know that's offensive. Someone had to tell you. I care about you. It's me. I'm telling you. Quit being such a weirdo. Quit bringing up Star Trek all the time. Jeez. Maybe it's something like that. If your family is weird, no one's going to tell you. You've got to figure it out on your own because the family is too sacred a thing. And we don't have enough experience with families to say for certain your family is weird. Almost no one has this confidence. We've met thousands of individuals. We've met thousands of individuals and we know that normal people don't bring up Star Trek 48 times in the course of a conversation. And if somebody is 30 and single and keeps bringing up Star Trek, a good friend will take that person aside and say, shut up about Star Trek if you ever wanna get married and have kids. But we don't know families enough we're almost never confident enough in our knowledge of families to say your family is weird. You've got something weird going on here. And we're often not willing to do that, I think because we secretly know why families are weird. When families are weird, I think we know why. The weirdness that a family manifests, if a family is off kilter, if there's something askew about the dynamic of the family, if, for instance, I'm going to use this as my, my, my catch-all example, if a teenage boy runs the family, why is not a rhetorical question. There is a why. And the family knows that the teenage boy runs the show, but the teenage boy, the weirdness, the in-its-own-wayness of the family actually keeps something even weirder under control. That's why the teenage boy runs things. Or if there's some weird thing about dad, like if dad has a close friend who's a woman and they go to the movies together sometimes, the family will always try to cover over the weirdness. Be like, what? I'm just good company. 
But they know it's weird. And the weirdness always covers over something even weirder. The reason why families do things in their own way, the reason why a family does something in its own way and becomes weird and because, becomes unhappy is because it holds back, it's the dam that holds back some greater weirdness. And if the weirdness were solved, other weirdness would come to light. Every weirdness in a family guards some great secret. And the reason why we don't pry into the weirdness of unhappy families is because they are guarding whatever mysteries they have for a reason. The weirdness that a family guards holds back a secret shame or embarrassment. And we don't want to get into that. Happy families are alike because they all follow a model. The model imposes guidelines, limits, restrictions, and imperatives on a family. A model suggests that a family can make you happy, but it can only make you so happy. It can fulfill you, but it can only fulfill you so far. A model suggests the family serves a purpose, but not every purpose. When an unhappy family will not admit its own unhappiness, it's often because they have a high regard for the family. Family as a concept. And they know that in admitting they're unhappy, their failure is profound. To fail at family is not like failing in a career. It's not like failing in a sporting match or a game. It's a profound failure. Families that won't admit their own unhappiness often want too much of the family. And unhappiness compounds upon unhappiness because it cannot be confessed. A regard for family and a demand that family be ultimately fulfilling, ultimately insulated against the world. It's too much. And unhappiness will only compound over and over and over again. In order to have a happy family, you have to be willing for the family to only make you so happy. That's what it means to have a model. And the family cannot become a solution to all problems. There must be something outside the family that solves the problems of the family. Because families are like individuals. They have their own unique problem that no individual can solve. And that's why the family needs the church. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 